Right, why don't we open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, begin our time in the Word together this morning. Come to the final portion of this. By God's grace, after persevering for the last year and change, we will finish our expository study of the book of 1 Peter this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 5, the passage is verse 10 through verse 14. Please follow along as I read. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So last, uh, last portion of our study in 1 Peter, and uh, we will begin this with a word of prayer, so please bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, again, we come to you asking for your help, asking for your wisdom to give us clarity and understanding from this text that we can once again be encouraged by your grace, your grace which covers a multitude of sins, your grace which provides everything that we need for life and godliness and salvation. May it be abundant in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. As we have uh, repeated throughout our study in the book of First Peter, the theme of this book is standing firm in the true grace of God. So I think a, a relatively simple thing to be able to picture in our minds that the Christian, not alone, but with other Christians, that is the church, and in Peter's case, a series of churches throughout Asia Minor at that time, are standing together. And so he repeats this theme throughout, he develops it, standing firm in the true grace of God. And he actually does not say this until the very end of the book, and he says it actually in this passage. He says in verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And he says, stand firm in it, right? That very important command, that imperative, that which is not optional for the church. We are commanded to stand firm in true grace. And so we'll cover at last some of the various ways by way of reminder as to how grace operates in the life of the Christian. We'll We'll close this also with just some, some reminders. It's, it's hard to get away from 1 Peter because so many of the issues that have been covered in our study thus far are, are issues that keep coming up, right? Said before that the book of 1 Peter, and one of the reasons we're studying it, is that it tells us everything there is to know about the Christian life. However, concisely, it's hard to read through this book and find something that is glaringly absent. And so it is my concern for us as believers, as a local church, that we are reminded yet again of the place of grace within the church. Things that we cannot risk 
forsaking, forgetting, failing to incorporate it into our life together as Christians. These are things regarding grace that are to be outstanding, a regular part of life. And so, in closing, we are able to revisit some of those things and also be able to examine some very key things as to where grace lies, its source. Especially in the context of suffering. So, title this morning of this sermon is The God of All Grace, A Final Call to Stand Firm. Final Call to Stand Firm. So this is sort of our our exit message, our exit study. A final reminder of the place, the position, the prominence of God's grace in the life of this church. I would desire us to be a church where grace abounds, where grace is powerful and obvious, that it really dominates our worship and our our activity and our lives together. So I don't really have much of a fancy outline this morning, but in closing, we can bring up three things I think that are pretty prominent in this text regarding grace. Say them all now, so go ahead and write them down. In closing, first of all, Peter gives us the encouragement of true grace. Secondly, he gives us the exhortation of true grace. And then finally, he gives us an example of true grace. So regarding grace, we have the encouragement, the exhortation, and the example. Okay, and we'll, there's a little bit of overlap between the exhortation and the example, but we will try to parse this out and get as much as we can out of this text as it benefits the church and points us to the grace of the gospel. So let's look at verse 10. This begins the encouragement of true grace in closing. After you have suffered for a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, I look at this and I think, wow, what a powerful reminder. What a powerful passage. You know, we talk about, uh, in, in, in pastor parlance, we talk about the importance of landing your plane in your sermon. You know, make sure it's not a, it's not a crash and burn. Or, you know, ease into the landing when you kind of come to the end. This, this ending reminds me of something of like uh, the way an F-35 or a Harrier jump jet lands and takes off. It's just with so much power, so much precision, right? That's how Peter lands it. With a powerful reminder of God's gracious provision in our lives. So he says this, after you have suffered for a little while, and what this encouragement does is it gives us right off the bat immense perspective concerning our relationship in standing in true grace, but also suffering. As you remember, suffering uh, paints a very interest, paints for itself a very interesting picture. It's threaded throughout this book. Peter's faithful to remind us, yes, you have all these things. Yes, you have every grace that God supplies for us in Jesus Christ. However, you will suffer. But part of grace being revealed in the life of the church is the ability to go through suffering and yet not wither, yet not renounce Christ. To see that grace is such that you will not fail. That faith that God has given you will not ultimately fail. But you will suffer. But he says this, you, have, you, you will suffer for a little while. So, of course, Peter is able to express the reality of the afflicted church throughout Asia Minor. And it offers this encouragement. We have to also keep in mind that what he is saying comes right on the heels 
of verse 8, right? Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We understand, yes, the present danger, but we also understand that the devil is a defeated foe. He is a conquered enemy. And so we can endure suffering precisely because we live in light of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so now he turns his attention and says that after you have suffered for a little while, yes, Satan and his emissaries will continue to afflict afflict you, but remember the backdrop against which this is occurring. And he brings in the backdrop of eternity. The fact that the God of all grace has called us into eternal glory. So we need not be put off or discouraged because suffering is a temporary thing. Put suffering in terms of duration. It's not to last forever. And it is nothing in light of spending eternity with Christ. Sometimes we're so temporal in our focus, right? We, when we treat suffering as though it is going to last forever. And yes, suffering, as we keep saying, may be prolonged. It may be intense. Even if we understood suffering here for a little while to encompass the whole of the Christian life, because from beginning to end, we will suffer. We will suffer affliction in some way, shape, or form, especially as we mature in Christ and face the unbelief of this world as we bring the gospel to it. And But to any believer who has had to pay the price in one form or another, suffering will only seem to have been for a very short time or short duration in light of eternity, in light of the blessings of glory with Christ. Consider what Paul says. We read this in our Scripture reading this morning. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we don't need to rehash all of the suffering that Paul experienced to just call up some of those reminders, but to say that Paul knew what suffering was like. So he gives us great perspective here. Most of us don't suffer and will not suffer like Paul has. And so we can say with him, yeah, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. In light of eternity, friends, it is a blip on the radar, these sufferings that we experience. And it will seem short. Suffering will end, but glory with Christ will never end. It will never fade away. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Very important verse regarding suffering. Paul says this, therefore we don't lose heart. I mean, is that not what happens when we suffer, especially for quite a while? We tend to lose heart. We grow weary. We get discouraged. We want the, all we want the suffering to do is to end. Doesn't matter how. We just want it gone. But Paul says, wait a minute. No, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We recognize it in suffering. God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection, we are being renewed day by day. That's what He's doing with us. He's conforming us to the image of Christ, and we should not lose sight of that. To lose heart is to lose, the, is to lose very sight of, what is, of the work that is going on in our hearts. To lose sight of that renewal. Now listen to verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4. For our light... Consider who's talking about this. Consider who's speaking. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us 
and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul pictures suffering as the very vehicle, very instrument in achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Not, not that suffering is in any way meritorious, but just as we hear from the book of Acts, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's just the way it is. It's the boat we're all in. So verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen. That is, we don't preoccupy ourselves with suffering and on the troubles of this world, but on, he says, what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So this characterizes for us and puts into great perspective that the temporary nature of suffering, that in light of the the blessings and graces and joys of eternity, suffering is of little account. We must all go through it. But in persevering through it, our destination is glory with Christ, to rule and reign with Him forever. And that brings us to the most important topic of this entire book. The one to whom Peter has strived to point us to this entire time. Look at your Bibles again. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. So that's what he points us to. The God of all grace. And I, and I want to isolate this for our purposes today because the, the only time in the New Testament that this title is, is used, this is it. Nowhere will you find this term used. The God of all grace. Furthermore, it's unique in all of recorded religion. And no other stream of thought, whether philosophy or religious or cultic or whatever you want to say, nowhere else is God known as the God of all grace. That is to say, to understand the God of the Bible, we must understand that He is a God of grace. He is the source and giver of it. So what Peter is doing here is presenting a God, our God, who is preeminently unique in His characterization. He is the God of grace. Not only is this unique, but you could think of any other man-made God, a product of the work of man's hands or his imagination. What can man conjure that is worthy of that title? That is worthy of such a majestic description that is the God of all grace. Suffice it to say that man would never conjure this up. Man isn't preoccupied with grace. He's not preoccupied with what God can do or has done. He's preoccupied with what He is able to do. And of course, when man is going that direction, when he, was, when he is making a God for himself, he immediately rejects grace and incorporates his own works, his own strength and wisdom and ability. But grace is lost completely once the work of man enters the picture. See, we are called, friends, to know grace. To know grace personally. We cannot know God without knowing grace. For He Himself is grace and has fully manifested that to us in the person of His Son. One of my favorite Scriptures is Titus 2.11. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That is, grace has been manifest. This grace is Jesus Christ. He is grace incarnate, and He has appeared to all men. And His people are to preach Him, proclaim Him, make Him known to all men. When we preach Christ, when we preach God, 
We are preaching grace, and if we are not preaching grace, we have completely missed the gospel. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, He is powerful. Yes, He is judge. But to preach that without grace is to miss the good news of the gospel. It's no wonder here we preach something called the gospel, the, 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 the doctrines of grace or the doctrines of sovereign grace. That is, when we preach Christ's redemptive work, we do so with the view that God has done everything necessary to reconcile sinful man with a holy, righteous, and good God, and that there is nothing that man is able to do outside God's gracious intervention to be right with Him. That is what we proclaim here. So we see preaching grace as an obligation, something that we cannot miss. Without God, there is no grace. The God of all grace, that is, if there is any grace to be had, it is all from God. And that you will never find true grace in people. You will not find it in experiences. You will not find it in idols. You will not find it in your education or your emotions. And you cannot conjure it up. It is sourced completely in God. Revealed through His Son, Jesus. The God of all grace also means that this grace will meet our every need. There is nothing that we can ever encounter in this life. No sin, temptation, affliction. For which God's grace will be found to be insufficient. Remember that. When you think of grace, remember that what God gives is enough. It is sufficient for everything that God's people need. To walk with Him, to resist temptation, to stand firm in the midst of the devil's attacks. Grace defined is God's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved love and favor that He shows to His people. To His people specifically. Because it is grace that saves. And when describing grace, we want to add one thing. Not only is it unmerited, unearned, and undeserved, there's nothing we can do to gain it ourselves. But it is also unfailing. That once God sets His redemptive grace upon someone, it will not fail to achieve its purpose. I love the way that Paul describes it, and it is consistent with uh, 1 Peter and its description here, that we stand in grace, right? In Romans 5, Paul talks about this grace in which we now stand, and because of that, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. See, the very fact that we stand in grace gives us hope. Gives us this anticipation of experiencing and seeing the fullness of God's promises given to us through the work of Christ. That is to say, grace defines all of the Christian life. See yourself standing in grace, not in the wrath of God, not in His judgment, but in all of His goodness and beneficence shown toward you. A grace that is faithful, a grace that is sufficient, a grace that is with God Himself, providing every need. See, grace is that which covers, colors everything about the Christian life. We cannot look at anything, even the very work of discipline from God upon His church and upon the saints, is not outside the purview of grace. It is, in fact, a work of grace. It is a reminder that God will have His way with us. 
that he, that he will accomplish His will in us, that He will conform us to the image of Christ. He will act upon us that which is consistent with our eternal destiny. And what is that? It is glory, that which He just said. He has called us to that glory, and so His grace set upon us will shape us to prepare us for that glory. I mean, consider all the themes that we've hit regarding grace in this book. We've covered salvation, submission, steadfastness, things like service, even sanctification, suffering. See, they all point to some dimension of grace, some, some way in which God reveals His saving grace toward us. And it all culminates in this, this final, this final encouragement that we have, that God has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. And really, we're right back at the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 4, Peter talks about this inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. That is a description of eternal glory to which He has called us. That's what He does. And Peter here shows how God extends His grace. First, He calls. He calls sinners, right? Sinners who were dead in sins, uninterested in eternal things, who wanted to do things their way, who wanted to live autonomously from the commandments of God, who wanted to live autonomously from the grace of God. See, what, what Peter is describing here is not just a general call to glory. This sort of take it or leave it based on what you decide. This is an effectual call that is irresistible. A call that is heard by those to whom God gives ears to hear. Those who are now in Christ, right? Those who have been called effectually, irresistibly to glory. Those who have been chosen in Him before the foundation of this world. If we had read further in Romans chapter 8, we would come across this. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. Right? So, what Paul is giving us here is more than just a golden chain of redemption. In Romans 8, he's basically giving us God's perspective on those He saves. Right? He's giving us the heavenly view of things. That in the eyes of God, you are already with Him in glory. That's how much of a done deal Christ's redemptive work is toward His people. It is guaranteed. And it cannot be forfeit. So He calls us to this eternal glory. And we don't treat it casually or passively. It's something we pursue. We pursue godliness consistent with that. We live in accordance with the promises of God of it. And once again, Paul compliments Peter's words well here. In Philippians chapter 3, a passage we are, I think, well familiar with. He says this, verse 10, that I may know Him. This is what Paul desires. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. So yeah, he, he mentions, yes, the, the, the power of the resurrection, something we all desire, but also the fellowship of His sufferings. That Paul's desire to know Christ was so intense was so important that even the fellowship of his sufferings, that he saw that even in his own suffering, an identification with Jesus, being conformed to his death, in order, he says, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So once again, Paul articulates 
this anticipation of glory, this bodily resurrection from the dead in the context of suffering. That we will attain eternal glory, yet we will go through suffering. But this resurrection to which he points is a resurrection that transcends suffering. So we say, yes, this is suffering for a little while. It may be intense. It may be prolonged. But that is nothing compared to the glory that awaits. So we have that such an important perspective from Peter and Paul. Now note God's activity in this. I know we're kind of breaking the text down specifically, but I think it's that, that important, that essential. So he says this, look at the passage again. It says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, note this, in Christ, right? A recognition that this will all happen through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus. Then it says this, will himself, This is here for emphasis that God himself, as he has always done, will continue to do this himself through his own power. Will himself do this? You know, I was thinking about the uh, thinking about the Declaration of Independence. I think it's the Declaration of Independence of the people, by the people, for the people. It can kind of cause us to get preoccupied with our personal rights. And I think of our salvation in this, this context, that it is something of God, by God, and for God, right? Yes, we reap the benefits, but ultimately, God as God, as ruler and sovereign over His own universe that He has made and directs, this is for Him. He saves us to bring glory to Himself. He saves us that He may magnify Himself, that His name may be known among the nations in all creation as we see His redemptive work take place. So He will Himself bring this work of glorifying us into fruition. See, grace has always been a peculiar work of God. And whenever we see His saving grace at work and describe Father, Son, and Spirit, the, the Trinity is involved directly. That is some comfort that we can take in God's work of redemption, even as we experience it right now. Notice a very important truth here. When, when it says that God Himself will do, do this Himself, complete this work of redemption, it brings us great comfort knowing that this work of redemption is never going to be outsourced. Right? It's never going to be compromised. We never, we never have to sit and wonder what party has taken over this work of grace. Often it is man that tries to usurp that role for himself. And yet by this himself the fact that god will himself we know that he always takes ownership of it it will never be mediated through a third party when we call on god for help for for sustenance right for his grace to abound in our lives we will never be forwarded to a call center in india what comfort that should give us that god does it all and he does it in close proximity, even while His glory dwells within us. We know that grace is always a special work of God. But it is precious. It is more precious to Him than it is to us. Know that, Christian. That the work of redemption matters to God infinitely more than it matters to you. You may think it's important, but it matters so much more to God. He will complete it. 
It is His work. And with the knowledge that the devil is personally roaming around, seeking someone to devour, it's comforting to know that God Himself is at work overcoming the power of the devil daily in our lives. The work of grace has already overcome Satan's claim on us. Satan has no claim on us. We are God's now. We belong to Him. That's how grace operates. I want you to understand grace is something that is continually at work in us by God. It's not something that we have to see in the far-flung future. No, it is before us. It is with us right now. And it also awaits us. Because grace is of an eternal quality that God Himself applies and that we understand by knowing Him. And so what will this grace do? Peter goes on. He, God Himself, you see how much we can get out of one word in Scripture? Himself. What is God going to do? What is this work of grace going to accomplish? It says this, Will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, of course, in these words, there is some overlap, but we have to understand that nothing in Scripture is redundant. It's all there because it's supposed to be. So while we want to understand the power of these words collectively, we also want to understand them individually. What what truth do they point us towards? What truths? As Thomas Schreiner says, these exhortations are the very means by which God's promises are secured. And indeed, God in His strength grants believers the strength to carry out the exhortations. So what's the first thing? We know that God perfects us in grace. And what, of course, this word carries with it is the idea of restoring to wholeness. We've talked a lot about this concept of shalom. Life as it should be. That things are in order. That we have peace. That God is for us and not against us. All of these things characterize shalom. And that is the work that God is doing right now. So that's the idea we have is God perfects us. He will perfect His church. If you've ever broken a bone before, it's pretty painful. And one thing the doctor does before is what? He sets, he sets the bone. Especially if you, got, if you, if you had a, a break so bad, you know it's got a bone sticking out of your skin. Not to be gross or anything, but breaks are bad. Breaks are painful. So you go to the doctor, he's got to set it in place. Why? If he doesn't set it in place, it won't heal properly, right? It'll heal all wonky and you'll have problems operating at the way that it was intended, the way that it was created to function. Be a painful ordeal. But this, is, this goes back to our idea of submission. That as we submit to the Lordship of Christ, as we humbly and lovingly submit ourselves to divine authority over us, that God continues to set that which was broken, to properly align it so that we experience shalom, that, we, that God brings His healing grace to us. And that's what grace does. That's what grace does. It restores us, brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness, old to new. And the list goes on. The point is, is that God's work of grace will complete what it has begun. And it's an uncomfortable process. No one likes pain, right? No one likes to be broken. Yet, we, are under, we understand from this text and from God's grace that it will always achieve its goal. 
The grace of God will finish what He started from beginning to end so that it presides over the entire picture of redemption. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's an ongoing work. We, we have all the promises now, but we are seeing those promises come to full fruition. He's confident of it. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. See, that is why, as I've said many, many times, and I just, sometimes, yeah, it's a broken record, but I want us to... I want us to understand this in the very core of our hearts. That no matter how bad things seem, God's work has not been derailed. God's work of redemption will not fail. Because He began that good work. And He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That day will, that, that, that work of perfection will continue unabated, uncompromised until the day of Christ Jesus. And listen to what Paul goes on to say. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. See, Paul is not, he, he is not discouraged. He is not put off. You know, we hear these, again, the, 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 the grandeur of the gospel, right? To go to every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that it's going to transform this world, that Jesus now is making all things new. And here is Paul sitting in prison, and yet it didn't change his mind. Right? Even though Paul the Apostle's in jail, does not change his mind concerning the work of redemption, concerning the work of grace and its power. God will keep doing what he is doing. Paul was not moved, nor should we be. Rather, seeing Paul as an example, we continue to stand firm no matter where God has us. He will perfect us. Here's another one. We will be confirmed in grace. See, God confirms His church in grace. This means to set something fast or to make something firm. What it refers to is the fixed position of an actual structure. You see, when you, when you build any kind of building, you want to make sure it's all connected in a certain fashion so that it is not compromised by external or internal elements. You don't want someone coming and pushing it down. You don't want the, you don't want the wind to rip the roof off or blow it down. No, you want, you want that structure to be fixed. And how do we understand our fixed nature? That is, we are the church. That means we are built on the rock. We build our house on the rock. The rock of Christ. And all His power and promises that He gives us. God's grace is sufficient so that we do not waffle back and forth in the face of opposition. Remember the last passage Peter calls us to resist the devil to remain steadfast and firm in the faith. But in that passage as well, remaining steadfast was instruction for the believer. He says this, remain this way. But here, we find out why we are able to do so in the first place. Because it is God who confirms us. We can resist Satan and his lies because we are confirmed in grace. This is something that God does personally. He will instill that characteristic within every believer and within His church. See, what this is here is just the classic case of being what we are, being who we are in Christ. Why do we remain firm? Because we are firm. Let's be consistent. Here's the third one. 
kind of, there's a lot of overlap between being strengthened and being confirmed. So we're also strengthened in grace. So this, is, so confirmed speaks of the stability of the structure. The word strength refers to the integrity and quality of the structure itself. So you think about what, how the church is described in chapter two of this book. It is that we are being built up as a holy house, right? We are the living stones. We come to him as a living stone that has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones, listen to this, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So we are strengthened to that. Many stones, one structure, firm on the, on the living stone that is Christ. So apart from the power of Christ in us, we are weak and helpless and unable. We need strength to withstand and resist our enemy. How does God do that? By, by, by His grace, He strengthens us in Christ. And what's amazing about this is we have the word of truth and we can pass it on. That is how the building itself, that's how the holy house is strengthened. As it grows, as more stones are added to it, we don't have to fear the church being top-heavy. Right? We are always grounded in the sure rock of Christ our Savior and Lord. You, we pass it on. The example of this is in Thessalonians. Paul writes to Thessalonians, he says this, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. This is how we do it. By encouraging one another. By ministering to one another by the word of God. We are, we, we find that we are dependent upon one another and that's a good thing. We are called to be faithful to equip one another to proclaim the gospel. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter. I've always been encouraged by this passage. Luke 22 verse 32 it says this, just after telling him, telling Peter that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. No doubt Peter remembers this, but he says this, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail in you when you have once have turned again, strengthen your brothers, right? Peter would be restored even after great failure. And I think we can rest in that as well. We will fail. We will fail to be strong. There are going to be pivotal times in our lives, friends, where we are, where we just eat it, right? We fall flat on our face even though we have resolved to stick with Christ, to walk with Him, to not, deny, to, to not deny Him, to not stumble in our faith, and yet we do, we will, but we, we rest in Christ, our advocate, right? Our great high priest who prays for us, who strengthens us, so that when we are restored, we can continue as we have done before, strengthening one another. Here's the fourth one. Finally, we come to establish. Established in grace. This, of course, means to lay a foundation. Speaks of the, the secure spiritual foundation in Christ that all believers enjoy as a gift of God's grace. Peter puts it in future tense as if to say that the foundation itself will strengthen over time. It will become more evident in the life of the Christian. See, all these things and more. But God Himself will do it. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know when you really want to emphasize the point to someone you're talking to? It's like you'll say the same thing, but in many different ways. To help them really ground themselves in that truth or in the reality of what you just told them. So Peter gives us a similar instruction. If we had any doubts, we can look at the Word of God here. And as Peter has 
disclose this letter to these churches, we too can be encouraged that the promises of God will not fail. And that He will establish us in grace. That is our very foundation. The ultimate foundation, of course, is Christ. Christ Himself and all the work that He has done. We are established in that forever. So look look at what all this is for. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so in this doxology, Peter's primary use, I want us to draw our attention toward this because this is to where all this is leading, right? Why we are the holy house, why we are God's holy people, why we proclaim His kingdom is because the church's desire is to see Christ reign in this world. We want Christ to have the dominion. And as we do the work of the gospel, even now we see dominion slipping away from this declawed lion we refer to as the devil. Dominion has been taken from him. And as the gospel goes forward, we see in greater color the reality of that. We want Christ to have the dominion. We want him to be cherished and honored as King of kings, Lord of lords, and as our Savior. We want to see that in all of the world. In every area of life. The word for dominion here is one that is typically used for strength or power. That Peter is describing all strength to God who works His grace mightily in His people and for His own glory. And while He allows the devil to prowl around and for His people to suffer even greatly, it is all within the administration of God's sovereign power and care. Remember, this lion is also the dragon who's on the chain. He's a dragon on a chain. He has limited wiggle room. So that God, as His Gospel is preached, can be the one who, is, who reigns supreme so that His sovereign grace may be evident. But it's not going to be evident to the world until it is evident in His church. We want His dominion to be forever and ever. But don't imagine the dominion of Christ to be something to where it is only law, right? It's only rules. It's only this vision of the world where we all just do what God says and obey His commands. It's so much more than that. Yes, we, we want that. We want God's commands to be obeyed. But that is not going to be accomplished without the ultimate supremacy of His grace. We will not obey His commands unless He has set His saving grace upon us. It is grace that leads to obedience. There will be no obedience of the nations until they obey the gospel of grace, until they receive this gift of salvation through Christ. So when Christ reigns supreme, when His, when, when heaven and earth are once again one, yes, we will see a world where God's commands are obeyed and honored, but we will even more than that see a world that is filled with God's grace in Christ. We will be a people of grace, preaching the gospel of grace in a culture of that is dominated by grace. See, we're going to obey God and we're going to love it too. <laughs> His commandments aren't burdensome. But the reason they're not burdensome is because we live in grace. See, it's a both and, not an either or. But we desire to see Christ with ultimate dominion. To see His peace rule in this world. And let me tell you something. This this would be a scandalous thing to teach in Peter's time. And here's the reason why. He's preaching 
the, the dominion of Christ, right? The, the reign of the Prince of Peace who is going to bring grace and justice and salvation to the ends of the earth. See, a Roman steeped in paganism would, would scoff at that. And the reason is because they were living in the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. What do we need peace for? We already have it. Who is this Jesus who brings peace? And yet we would say right away that this so-called Roman peace was an illusion. It did not bring peace. It did not bring justice. It basically just civilized the brutality and unbelief of man. So Jesus brings us peace, not as the world gives us, but as it is meant to be. Peace, the peace of God. And so when we preach the Gospel, yes, we we preach so that men may be saved, but we also preach to a greater view. That is, that Christ's dominion would continue to spread. Every time someone comes to the Lord in saving faith, we see the dominion of Christ grow. And that's why we preach. That's why we proclaim His name. We want to see Christ loved and honored, believed upon, but we want to see His kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does anyone in here have a problem with that? I don't think so. That's why we proclaim His name. So, let's uh, look very quickly. We, that's the encouragement. That's point one. But here's the exhortation and the example. Okay? So let's go through these closing, these closing two uh, or three verses. So he has the dominion forever and ever. We say amen to that. And then he says this, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ Jesus. So when I say, so there's an exhortation, right? That's the stand firm in the true grace of God. The example here, the example of true grace, I believe, is found in three primary, three primary settings. One is through Sylvanus, the other is through Mark, and the other is through she who is in Babylon. I'll explain these things briefly. So Sylvanus is a very key character in the New Testament. He's also known as Silas. Familiar with that name? He was a Roman citizen and he traveled with Paul as described in Acts 15 and 16. And he seems to operate as Peter's uh, amanuensis here. He's writing for him and he is the one circulating the letter of 1 Peter to all of these churches. And one thing mentioned about him is that he is a faithful brother. He is one who has walked with God. He has committed himself to the work of the gospel. That is a work of grace. That is an example of that, to be faithful. To have a man who is trustworthy, dependable, one who stands stable in the faith. No matter how we are called to serve the body of Christ, whether preacher, deacon, evangelist, janitor, ditch digger, whatever, the measure of success in ministry is gauged by fruitful faithfulness. It's standing your ground. It is committing yourself to whatever gospel-related task you have. And doing it with excellence and doing it as God provides the strength in spite of opposition and setbacks in spite of affliction. So be encouraged. Whatever work you're doing right now, hold on to your integrity. Commit yourself to excellence for the glory of God in spite of who doesn't notice, in spite of who disagrees or disapproves. You do these things for the Lord. And for that example, we look to a man like Silas. 
regardless of the difficult journey or the, the difficult task, he committed himself to get this important word circulated. And because of that faithfulness, here we are 2,000 years later preaching it. It's amazing what the grace of God can do and how it makes men faithful. So that's one example, right? She who is in Babylon, probably not an actual woman. I'm inclined to think that this is actually the church, the church in Rome. As we realize very shortly after this letter, great persecution centered in Rome is going to break out. So I believe Babylon is, is not literally Babylon the city, but it is Rome here, the church of Rome where this persecution is about to begin, I think that Peter is speaking in code actually to protect Christians, right? In case it gets into the wrong hands. They won't know who to track down. So, by Peter saying, look at your text, chosen together with you, he's underscoring the solidarity and partnership of all the churches who are standing firm in the true grace of God. That even the church of Rome, as Peter understood it, would stand faithful. And here's the third example. So does my son Mark. This is Peter's son in the faith, as Timothy was to Paul. This is the same Mark who penned the Gospel of Mark, otherwise known as the Gospel of Peter. Um, remember, Mark, he was one who was the cousin of Barnabas, and he at one point ditched Paul. And in this, I, see, I think we see the grace of God active in the restoration. When we talk about Failure that may come in gospel ministry, and yet it is the grace of God that restores us to be able to be faithful. And here we see that very thing happening to Mark. Even Paul mentions it in 2 Timothy, that Mark has been restored. Such is the power of grace that Paul requests his presence because Mark is useful to him. He who, because of perhaps threats on the road, the danger of a missionary journey in Acts 13, you know, ditches them, goes a different way, but then he comes back. We see the grace of restoration take place. So here is the exhortation. Capping off our study of this. He says this, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Right? But this is the true grace of God. All that he has written in this letter describes the true grace of God. We embrace that grace. We want it to characterize all of our lives. And we want to be on guard against a counterfeit grace. Right? There is a true grace Peter talks about. But there is also a counterfeit grace. And as we understand grace and all of its provision and all the ways in which Peter brings it up in this text, whether through salvation or suffering or steadfastness or service, whatever have you, we embrace that grace that God reveals in the life of the church. But just by way of closing, I want you guys to think about a couple of things, a few things here regarding grace. Because we, we understand and experience a grace that is powerful, that does its work. And so we want to be on guard against the, a counterfeit kind of grace. So going, going down this really quickly. First is this. Beware of a grace without obedience. Beware of listening to the teaching about a grace that carries with it no life-transforming power. A grace that is stagnant, right? A grace that is not of God. A grace that gives you license to sin and to continue living life the way you always had in unbelief. Right? We believe in a grace that transforms our lives and that makes us like Jesus. 
So beware of that. Beware of a grace that gives lip service to the gospel in that regard. Beware of a grace that limits God's power. Anything that tries to add to it or or characterize grace as insufficient, beware of that grace and reject it. Get it out of here. The grace of God is sufficient for everything. Here's another one. This one's important too, especially in days like these. Beware of a grace that leaves you isolated. Beware of embracing a grace that says it's just me and Jesus, right? That I don't need the church. I don't need the body of Christ. I'm fine without it. Beware of that. We embrace a grace that draws us to one another in Christ so that we desire to serve one another. Here's another one. Beware of a grace that looks for the easy way out. Beware of a grace that makes you, that turns you into a coward. That tries to avoid suffering at all costs. That rolls over and dies. Beware of a grace that compromises. Beware of a grace that fails, that does not complete its work in Christ. The grace that we have, we know will succeed. We've said it many times already. Finally, is this. Beware of a grace that is absent. That is, ask yourself if grace has not, if, if, a, if a graceless life has gained a foothold in our midst. Are we ungracious? Are we easily offended? Do we fail to take correction? Are we unforgiving and harsh toward those who offend us? Are we overly critical, demanding, and impatient? You say, say, we've heard these things. Yes, you've had many times, and yet I cannot stress them enough that if grace is to abound in our midst, friends, that we must embrace a true grace of God, the grace as Scripture describes, a grace that comes from an embracing of the gospel itself and sees it as all-sufficient for our lives. That is the grace we know and love. That is the grace that we embrace. That is the grace that we proclaim. And we are to stand firm in it. Without hesitation, without compromise, without doubting God's provision. Finally with this. Greet one another with a kiss of love and peace. Remind the gospel of the gospel that brings us peace to all who are in Christ. We're in Christ, so we have His peace. And we see that peace spread as His people proclaim His name. So be encouraged, friends, though suffering may mount and may come our way in a strength that we never thought we would see in our beloved country, we prepare ourselves for it. So I close with this from this hymn, How Firm a Foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. God will do it. He is faithful, and He will help us to stand. Amen? Amen. Well, that is the book of 1 Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love for us, and we thank You for the book of 1 Peter and what a journey it's been. Sometimes a slog, but we want to take the time to ponder the truths contained therein, uh, to, to see it as a worthy investment to explore the text, to enjoy it, to know, Lord, how uh, you use people, you use fallen people and call us to you, that we may be partakers of your grace, that we may be your holy people, to be a holy house. I mean, what, what, a, what a picture that is in our minds, Lord, that you can bring 
people together who formerly were at enmity with you, who hated you, who only sought that which was good for ourselves, to, to, to worship self, to ne- never consider others or what's good for them, to never see life as an opportunity to glorify you and to in- invest in the good of others, to minister to others. And Lord, in Christ, we have all that. We have all that and more. And we cast ourselves on your precious promises, knowing that you're faithful, knowing that we are able to stand firm in grace, to see it as a characteristic of our very existence, that it is, it's all from you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And may it be sweet to us. May it never be dull. May we never treat it casually. May we never be ignorant of its power. May we never see it usurped with a works righteousness mindset that just divides and kills. Lord, we want your grace to continue to sustain our life, to strengthen us, that it would be so strong in our midst that we would, all, that we would look to you in all things. Lord, we also do this knowing that as we are reminded in 1 Peter, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near and we get to partake in this final stage of your redemptive work that we get to preach the gospel of grace. Help us to be faithful. Help us to stand against the enemy. Help us to continue to love and serve one another as we face a time where perhaps suffering may multiply. But rather than seeing it as a feather in our cap, Lord, we see it as one more way in which we can make your name known. We see even suffering as one more way in which you will subdue all earthly kingdoms so that in the end, only one will ultimately matter, and that is your Son, our King, our Savior, our dearest treasure. May we walk faithfully with him. May we stand firmly in the grace that he supplies. I pray this for our church especially and all those in Colorado Springs who are doing that work, even those churches around the world who are suffering and yet who stand faithful. Bless them and may they be an example to us, Lord, as they uh, endure a lot of difficult things right now. Thank you again, Lord. May you be glorified in our remaining worship. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.